The Interchange is brought to you by Jinko Solar, a leading solar panel manufacturer and energy storage integrator. Publicly listed on the New York Stock Exchange, Jinko Solar has deployed 100 gigawatts in 160 countries globally, including more than 15 gigawatts in the U.S. As a global leader with strong regional focus, Jinko Solar has a sales office located in San Francisco, California, and a manufacturing facility in Jacksonville, Florida, with over 300 employees available to provide customers with timely, local service. Jinko Solar now offers energy storage for a variety of residential, CNI, and utility projects. To learn more about Jinko's Eagle Storage Solutions, visit www.jinkosolar.us/interchange. So I've spent time looking recently at solar, and you're like solar finance, and no, just solar hardware. Like, what's the next frontier of turning photons into motion of electrons? In order to further the energy transition, investment in clean tech companies is essential. We've seen more growth in the last five years than the last hundred, with trillions of dollars flooding the market in the interests of accelerating the path to net zero. As always on The Interchange, we look at early stage tech companies who are aiming to solve the biggest challenges in the industry. Azola Ventures is a venture capitalist firm that invests in those types of companies. On the show today, I'm joined by Matthew Norton, partner at Azola, to discuss the current investor appetite for green tech investments, how the sector deals with greenwashing, and whether SPACs are still an effective tool. That and much more coming up. Matthew, thanks for joining us. David, I am delighted to be here. How are you today? Good. Thank you. Thank you. So Azola Ventures, tell us a little bit about them, what you guys look for. I know you're green tech investments, early stages, but give us a little bit more about what you guys look for and how you're progressing. Yeah. You know, on one hand, uh, you might look at what we do and think, wow, this looks like a pre-seed, seed, series A stage venture capital firm focused on climate. I know a lot of those. On the other hand, we're kind of from outer space. And I think it departs from the fact that what we're doing is an impact first initiative was actually born out of a 501c3 public charity called Prime Coalition, uh, which I helped to get built from its earliest days. And it really all comes down to the evaluation criteria that we have that enable investments to move forward in our pipeline. Uh, The first one is gigaton scale climate impact. So we only invest in companies in solution areas that we could see half a gigaton cumulative of CO2 equivalent mitigated by 2050. And we can talk about the process that we have for figuring that out, how it's instrumented by the public charity. Uh, But the second one is the one that makes us weird. It's a principle of additionality, which means we only invest in cases where the round is unlikely to come together, but for our participation, either as a lead or as a participant. So we do the opposite of chase hot deals. If there's an entrepreneur walking up and down Silicon Valley collecting competitive term sheets, that's great. We're cheering from them for the sidelines. Uh, We're really looking for neglected opportunities and underestimated companies. Uh, And then lastly, if we only invested in things that could have big climate impact, and you know, may have a challenging time raising money at this stage in their life from mainstream investors, we could make a lot of bad picks that might not grow into companies that could achieve climate impact. So third, we only invest in cases where we can see kind of bullet point level seed milestones that if achieved could cause a company to kind of graduate from that additionality principle and have access to capital more broadly. And that's interesting because what I see is there's a lot of initiatives out there from a financing standpoint for green tech companies. But I think there's also a lot of gaps because you've got early stage, stage two, and as you kind of get to more maybe a traditional bank financing, I think you know banks have come out with a lot of sizable lending initiatives and investing initiatives. 
But when you really talk to the bankers and understand how they work, they're regulated banks. And so they have to meet certain regulatory guidelines that sometimes the green tech companies, particularly early on, are not able to meet. And so with the energy transition initiative and the aggressive targets that we've had, there seems to be sometimes a disconnect. And the bankers will tell you, we have all this money to give to green initiatives, but yet (laughs) we can't find the companies to do it. And so there are gaps within it. It looks like you guys fill some of those gaps as well as some of those in the middle type companies that just need that little extra push to help get going. Yeah, it's definitely moved around. And I really like what you've raised here because it was the genesis of our organization. So, uh, you know, I grew up as a venture investor in the original Cleantech 1.0 bubble. I had uh, co-founded and led a company called Lux Research that's one of the largest tech analyst firms focused on deep tech, particularly in climate and energy, was acquired by a private equity firm, Regal Sagemount. Uh, And I got recruited into a firm called Venrock that's arguably the oldest venture capital firm, uh, originally the VC arm of the Rockefeller family in the 1930s. And I spent about five years there and was fortunate to help support some companies that did very well. Uh, Nest Labs, for example, that Google acquired and became quite a a brand within Google. A company that I worked on with a colleague of mine who led the investment called Lucid Motors that we invested in as an electric drivetrain company called Ativa that is now a high-end challenger to Tesla uh, with tens of billions of dollars in market cap. But I was personally really frustrated. What I wanted to fund was the true game changers of climate at the earliest stages When there's still a lot of technology risk, the team is probably not complete. There's probably at least one and maybe more than one pivot to come in the life of the business. Really companies that have graduated past the stage of government grants. Uh, You know, they've gotten their RPE grant or their DOE grant. They're kind of on the other side of that. But they go up and down the street to mainstream venture investors or even angels and hear this is a little too early, a little too risky. Could you come back in two or three years? And I kept bringing those opportunities to the firm's Monday morning meetings and throwing up bricks on the basketball court that just didn't resonate in a conventional venture context. And I didn't have a solution to that problem, but I did have a friend, a brilliant young woman named Sarah Carney, who came out of the philanthropy world. And she opened my eyes to her thesis area that there was actually a very large amount of impact investing money in both the corpus side, so the making more money side, and the grant making side, the you know money going out to do good, that actually is several times larger than the entire venture capital asset class in the US alone. And she'd recognize that this color of capital could fill this early stage gap where companies were dying on the vine when we've got a clock ticking uh, to mitigate a one and a half degree, you know, let alone more than that Celsius temperature rise. So we teamed up in 2015 and tried to figure out how to do this. We didn't presuppose a fund as the answer. Maybe it wasn't, right? You know, maybe it was like a colloquium to bring foundations and family offices and corporates to invest catalytically and directly in new ways. Uh, You know, maybe it was a series of best practices. Who knew? But as we investigated the barriers that were keeping this money on the sidelines, Everything from how do I screen a huge universe of opportunities to how do I identify where there's the biggest opportunity for climate impact to how do I know if I have patient and risk tolerant capital that I'm putting it toward its highest and best use. We realized pretty quickly that an intermediary was needed to make that work. Uh, And we raised our first fund called Prime Impact Fund focused just squarely on that capital gap, started investing in 2018, wrapped up our initial investments in 2021. Hugely proud of that portfolio, both from an impact perspective and in the extent to which that progress toward impact is being recognized by financial markets in pretty large fundraises at attractive valuations. And then we have raised our most recent fund, Azola Ventures, to do the same thing with the same people, 
but to be able to have more staying power and support companies past the seed and Series A stage uh, through to later points in their life. I've seen, you know, sort of the entire spectrum of capital, you know, through small safe notes to get a company started, uh, you know, through to structured finance to build large commercial facilities. And I would tell you the big thing about the gaps you've identified is that they move around. I think if you looked five, seven years ago, the yawning hole was in first institutional financing and equity into startups. Back then, PricewaterhouseCoopers Money Tree was the deal tracker of record in the field. And they broke out what they called clean tech financings and venture in their numbers. Uh, but they had them going to zero dollars and zero cents of first time financings into new companies in Q2 and Q3 2016. At that point, they just stopped counting. And it was obvious that's where the hole was. I think now there's actually a significant amount of Series A stage funding. A lot of capital has been raised by a whole range of funds, uh, you know, both here in the U.S. and internationally in the last few years. That's causing our focus to go even earlier to what we call proto companies that are kind of graduating from labs and just starting to think about businesses. But I think the gap is moving. I think if you looked two years from now, there is going to be a big hole at the Series A stage where the graduation rate of companies going from seed to A is going to run into a pretty severe capital constraint. And I think there's an enduring gap that was there 10 years ago, is there now uh, in first of a kind project financing. Once you've built the demo plant, the pilot plant, but you don't have the thousand hours of you know operating proof in time on target at a commercial scale facility, who wants to fund that when you haven't done it once beforehand? Uh, our sister nonprofit, Prime Coalition, actually has an effort to solve this problem, what's called early climate infrastructure, ECI, uh, mirroring in a way what we did with Prime Impact Fund and Azola. And do you expect to follow that gap as you continue to evolve? So where you see the gaps in the market for these companies, would you expect to raise the funds to help fill it? Yeah, definitely. You know, from an Azola perspective, our focus and what we're good at, you know, if you look at our team, what do we have the skill set to do? It's to figure out relatively early stage companies. You don't want to put any of us on a growth stage company that, you know, already has billions of dollars in valuation is hitting its inflection point. That's not what we're good at. But I think there's a spectrum of early stage from sort of pre-pre-seed uh, through to sort of series A, series B. And that's the zone where we will chase this principle of additionality. When it comes to other parts of the capital stack, as you go through to, you know, project equity, project debt, MES finance, you know, that's kind of the domain of new initiatives of our sister public charity, Prime Coalition, and where it's doing this, uh, you know, first of a kind project finance effort. That's why I find this discussion very interesting because, you know, I mentioned earlier about the banks and some of the challenges that they have in order to lend to companies, but they have to reach that certain stage. And there are gaps along the way that you're looking to fill. So if you're looking at the companies, the early stage companies with ideas to really make it that one gigaton impact, yep. what type of things are you looking for in your investment process? I mean, obviously, it's going to be a little bit risky if, if you're kind of like that last dollar in. So how does that work? And what all factors into your decision making process? Yeah, when you're the first dollar in, absolutely. So one of the things we have to be humble about and be deeply respectful, you know, to the point of reverence for entrepreneurs, is that at the very early stage, we just don't know. One of my mentors at Venrock intoned the words many times, we are always jumping off a cliff. We can only characterize the cliff off which we're jumping. And I say that many times a week. For example, you know, when a seed or pre-seed stage company pitches us, and you know, I've been through two pitches today so far with members of my team, they've got a plan. They may have pro forma financials. They've got a set of technical development milestones. We all know nothing is going to go probably anything like what's in that deck. It's theater. It's useful theater. 
you know, it gives us a tool to have a dialogue with the entrepreneur and understand how they think about technology and business and, you know, how they respond to challenges and questions. But, you know, sitting there and trying to diligence, are they going to get this many customers, you know, with these ARRs in these years is a fool's errand. So I think we tend to look for a few things. One of them is for a big swing at a big problem in climate, one that's going to matter so that if the company even achieves a fraction of its vision, it could be a meaningful contributor to decarbonization that might be valued in the marketplace. That's why we have that half a gigaton cumulatively by 2050 mark for these solution areas. There's plenty of room to invest in the slightly better battery cathode or the slightly more efficient solar panel, but that's not our focus and it shouldn't be because if you're off, even by a little, your opportunity for impact and value creation decreases a lot. I think the second thing we look for is a big techno-economic entitlement. Uh, So a factual, inarguable reason that although a lot of things have to line up, you know, a lot of tumblers have to line up in the lock to turn over, that if they do, you unlock a door that will be structurally advantaged. So we spend a lot of time, even at a very early stage, even when we're dealing with professors and postdocs and grad students who are pitching us based off a scientific paper, on really understanding You know, for example, an investment we made in Fund One in carbon capture that was enabled by a new material. What is this material? What's the cost to make it? You know, what environmental operating parameters surround it? What is the energy and the mass balance of the system? That's why our team is very heavy on science. We have three PhDs on staff and several other folks who are much deeply more technical than me with my BA in psychology. And then I would say third, we look for extraordinary aspects in the founders where they have set themselves apart from their community in some way that you couldn't fake. And at the early stage, that doesn't mean having some really rich CV of past uh, experiences in successful startups, right? In Prime Impact Fund, our first fund, of the 16 CEOs we backed, eight of their first non-academic jobs was CEO. So they founded the company from a postdoc role or a graduate student role. But there was something that set them apart. They had either brought on board the advisor who ought to know better, that really shouldn't have been there by rights, but is only there because it's an extraordinary opportunity. Or they had some you know, provisional agreement from a customer validating the promise of their techno-economics uh, that you would be surprised to see at that point. Maybe they had distinguished themselves in academia in some way that stood outside. That's number three. And then the fourth one, I think, is a glimmer. It's probably not worked out well, but a glimmer of a business case that can deploy rapidly once technology risk is retired. We really have to be sensitive not to funding science projects. If we've got this, you know, 2050 clarion call to mitigate climate disaster, we can't invest in things that will be commercialized in 50 plus or minus 50 years. And there are a lot of examples of those in the rearview mirror of energy technology. We've got to see a glimmer of a model where we could see emissions reductions realized in a climate relevant timeframe, you know, relevant to our children today. And that's a pretty narrow filter as well. So when you look at your investment timeline, what is that typically? How do you approach that? So we are structured to be patient because we know it takes time, you know, for industrial technologies. And most of the things we invest in are industrial technologies uh, to be deployed. We have a 15-year fund life, and then there are extensions on top of that. We don't think that's super long. There are other funds in our category that have 20-year timeframes. So that's not, you know, completely uncommon. But I would say there's a big difference in how long we think it may take for a company to reach an exit and, you know, be out of the fund and return capital to limited partners 
versus when we think it can start making inroads toward climate impact. The latter horizon, if that's 10 years or more, great. We recognize it. It comes with the territory. But the horizon to be able to you know, get in, begin deploying, and achieve commercial traction, we think of that as being a five to seven year time frame. We've had companies that have done it in one or two. You know, in our first fund, we were very fortunate to support a company called Charm Industrial that really does the reverse of oil and gas extraction. Uh, you know, they take biomass that has pulled CO2 out of the air, then pyrolyze that into a viscous bio oil, not useful as a fuel, but useful as a carbon carrier. And then the initial step in their business model is to then inject that underground in deep injection wells, the same places that we put hazardous or medical waste or frack water. In their first year and a half of operation, they ended up booking millions of dollars in contracts uh, from the likes of Stripe, Shopify, Microsoft, companies that are at the vanguard of carbon removal, you know, and have a, a very impressive run rate of growth on top of that in their second year operating commercially. That's not something we expected, but we've seen that sort of early commercial traction in more cases than we could have anticipated in our investments today. And when you're going through your investment decision-making process, I mean, how far up the value chain are you looking? I mean, right now there's a heightened focus on like scope three emissions. Yep. Right. You got scope one, two, and three. And scope three right now is continuing to evolve. People are really trying to get their arms around it. But curious as to, are you looking very holistically all through the value chain as you can for that economic impact or just something that you can look at initially as being a technology that makes a difference? So the short answer to that is yes, but let's put some caveats around it. When we look at the company's own operations, we really, you know, neither I nor our sister nonprofit do a deep analysis of the company's internal operations and what its contribution to emissions might be. The reason for that is because these are companies focusing on solution areas that are so large and in general aren't any good at doing anything but mitigating CO2 emissions. Uh, you know, our lithium extraction uh, company, Lilac Solutions, is good at nothing but pulling lithium out of the ground for electric vehicles. That's all it can do. We don't spend a lot of time on that. When we look at the other side, you know, at what the impact of the company's solution could be if adopted in the marketplace, we do look holistically, and I would also say systematically. One of the things when we first were looking, you know, very early on before even Prime Impact Fund, when we were investing out of the nonprofit through syndication alone, at setting targets, is we tried to set up case studies of companies and put in place kind of theoretical climate impact milestones and figure out would they hit them or not. And until quite recently, you know, that marker that I mentioned beforehand wouldn't have been hit by Tesla. And the reason is that Tesla, you know, has only deployed a limited number of cars into the world. Until quite recently, they were solely, you know, in the domain of the very, very rich, not just the kind of rich. And depending on where you were, if you lived in Pennsylvania, congratulations, you're driving a fossil-fired car, right? Uh, just because of the mix of electricity that's going on to the grid. And you could have argued if you were very narrowly focused on the company's impact itself, that there's no way in a meaningful time frame this would have large scale net climate impact. But that would be very dumb because the real impact of Tesla was that it formed a credible threat to incumbents such that they hustled on making electrification commitments 10 or 20 years faster than they might have otherwise and turned the battleship of an industry. So we think we have to look at sort of scope one, scope two, scope three. That's completely true. But I think we also have to look at it on an industry or a sector basis and at what impact when you know there are large numbers of incumbents waiting on a solution. If a solution is introduced, maybe it's this company's version that we invest in that doesn't get adopted broadly. Maybe they spur action, though, and adoption by others and additional competition in a space. That's part of our impact thesis as well. Absolutely. The genesis of my question, obviously, is 
Also because there's been a heightened focus on greenwashing, uh, right? You've had over the years a number of announcements and press releases, and I think it's getting a lot more scrutiny now. And you see the SEC in particular taking action and a closer look at at some ESG statements and things that uh, some companies have come out with. What do you think that impact is going to have on the industry going forward? I mean, obviously, you're going to have costs associated with making sure that you're in compliance as ESG guidelines, that they continue to evolve and get set. But do you see any impact going forward? Let's talk about ESG more generally and let's get more narrow. From the overall ESG perspective, right? Look, this has been one of, if not the dominant investment theme across asset classes for the last several years. It's been largely immaterial to our work. Uh, Kind of a general tailwind, you know, rising tide lifts all boats if we want to mix our nautical metaphors. But our, you know, LPs and Azola Ventures are generally very deeply impact-focused institutional foundations, high net worth individuals, corporations, and then, you know, batched through, uh, through a very sort of novel structure that we're proud of that, you know, we think democratizes impact investing some way, uh, our sister nonprofit Prime Coalition, uh, folks with much more modest means, you know, and more modest visibility who want to put their capital to work for climate impact. That's kind of stands outside, I think, this broader ESG theme. It's more of a focus specifically on climate as an issue, and therefore we're probably insulated from the ups and downs in the category overall. With that said, we are very, very conscious uh, that anytime there is money to be made, I don't think anybody wakes up and says, I'm a charlatan and I want to defraud people today. But people find themselves going down a slippery slope of good intent to uh, really you know, making bad or poorly thought out decisions that can impact a field broadly and freeze capital for decades. We think about this a lot. You know, for example, uh, just closed last week, you know, the most recent investment that I've led in Azola Ventures is in a company that is focused on improving forestry to be able to lock up more carbon in trees faster and then also more soil carbon in root systems of trees underground. Really incredible effort. Company name is Funga, an amazing technical founder, very early stage. We made that investment with a bit of caution because we know that forest carbon credits are a really bad neighborhood where there are a lot of actors who have shown up and have gamed systems. Uh, There's a wonderful white paper from Carbon Plan, Carbon Direct, and Berkeley uh, that goes through this in a lot of detail where forestry operations, just by planting a tree on one side of a hill rather than on the other side, claim a larger credit value for sort of purely bookkeeping you know, academic reasons that don't involve any changes to practices, any changings to plantings, you know, any change to, you know, how products are marketed, but are just purely gaming the system. But we think we have the opportunity because we're very active investors, right? And we work as closely as we can with our CEOs and founding teams uh, to accelerate their companies rapidly, but also to set examples for a field to do better and change things from the inside. And we think there's an opportunity in this category of forest credits, which again, has been gamed all over the place, to bring a new approach based on fundamental, provable, observable science that runs all the way through to different carbon accounting methods that correctly identify changes in practices and in outcomes and do the opposite of the gaming of the system that's been quite widespread in that category. We also have to think about this in a different way, which is being very cautious and thoughtful in investing in companies in spaces where they are attempting to innovate and disrupt industries that have been environmentally destructive in the past. So the first investment we made in Prime Impact Fund 
is in a company I referred to earlier called Lilac Solutions, which is emerging as the leader in direct lithium extraction. Uh, so pulling lithium directly out of a brine through high-tech chemical methods rather than using evaporation or hard rock mining. A big part of the reason that Lilac exists is that not only do we not have enough lithium availability to come even close to the electrification uh, goals that automakers have set for 2030, let alone 2050, and not only do we had massive increases in the price of the commodity, you know, 10x in the last two years, reflecting this lack of future availability, but conventional mining practices can also be very environmentally destructive and very perilous to native communities. Uh, in places where, you know, a large amount of evaporation is done, if that's not done with a level of thoughtfulness and responsibility that has been by no means universal, if you're an indigenous farmer at the bottom of the hill, you can have your crop yields impacted by extraction operations happening very far away from you. Lilac exists because it can reduce that resource footprint. The amount of water, the amount of net energy, the amount of land, you know, by an order of magnitude or two, you know, going down to sort of 1%, one and a half, half a percent. But it's operating in a field that historically has a reputation for not being environmentally friendly. And that puts an onus on clearly establishing that value proposition in a way that's easy to understand. It puts an onus around proactively and directly engaging with native and even indigenous communities uh, to make sure that their input is received sort of at every order of operations. And it also involves being cleaner than clean when it comes to engaging with foreign governments in countries that may have had less thoughtful extractors operating within their borders in the past. It's a lot, but it's something that we work with companies to do and that our portfolio companies have been extraordinarily thoughtful about so far. Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, I think some of the the things that we have seen isn't necessarily malintent. It's more, as you said, thoughtful decision-making process and, and maybe not fully understanding impact across the value chain. And I guess my question is, if we see kind of more action against this and an increase in cost, do you think that that could impact the amount of available capital to invest in these type of companies because it becomes a little bit more risky or the due diligence process is a lot more extensive to stay out of any kind of action that could occur as these ESG guidelines really become more stabilized and set as the SEC kind of establishes what exactly they're looking for and what their mandate is. Yeah, it's funny, you know, there are issues on all sides. I worry about the greenwashing element that you've raised earlier because it results in a misallocation of capital, right? We don't have capital going towards its highest and best use uh, for impact or for long-term, you know, sustainable value creation. You've raised sort of this opposite issue, you know, if you get more stringent measurement and verification that's required, does that raise the friction, raise the cost of capital, et cetera? I think at a macro level, yeah, and it's probably a good thing. You know, if that ends up sort of mitigating the ability to have fake or kind of climate positive or green efforts masquerading as something else, I think that's a correction of a different kind and very positive. I think at the stage at which we invest, which is relatively small dollar, you know, if we write a high single digit millions of dollars a check, that's a big one for us. Uh, we probably don't get impacted by that. When I think about it downstream, you know, look, I think there's a flight to quality. And if we at Azola Ventures are maintaining fidelity to our mission and are only looking at companies that, you know, as evaluated by our sister nonprofit, not by us, so we can't put the thumb on the scale, have this emissions reduction potential and have this principle of additionality, and we're able to put together good syndicates at the early stage 
that are active and helpful investors that help support management teams in having real, measurable, and verifiable uh, propositions in climate, I don't think they're going to have a hard time raising money down the road. I think, if anything, it might get a little bit easier. I think more scrutiny that weeds out efforts that may not be as thoughtful and rigorous actually make it easier for companies at the upper end of the pyramid to attract capital. Yeah, and, th- and that's a fair point. You know, my question was was really around, does the cost associated with going through the due diligence process then maybe prevent some of these earlier stage companies from being able to get the capital just because you know, people are unwilling to put forth that type of investment on the front end for less companies that are out there? I'm all for having these guidelines set and have a rigorous process just to make sure that the environmental impact is completely understood and that there's no misinformation out there. Yeah, I think it's a question of stage fit. Uh, you know, like, for example, we don't, when companies are raising their pre-seed or their seed round, have them show up and say, oh, this is great. You know, please uh, go away and spend $30,000 on a life cycle analysis study. Just not relevant, not the best use of capital at our stage. And I would say as companies graduate to sort of, you know, private round, Series A, Series B, may get up into the nine figures, that's less likely. Because allocators of capital are smart, right? You know, they're not going to cut off promising opportunities early on to send them through hoops that aren't stage relevant. I think by the time you have a high degree of stage relevance, companies have large enough balance sheets, you know, and enough resilience to be able to go through these processes that may require, you know, many months and many millions of dollars. But you're right, you know, the square peg round hole of kind of coming at things with a mez finance mentality in a, you know, privately held Series A, Series B stage company, that would be bad. Let's not do that. Exactly. With the growing use of renewables, such as solar, in our energy mix, the role of energy storage systems is more important than ever to ensure grid stability and reliability. Jinko Solar has you covered with battery storage solutions for grid edge to CNI and residential application. Jinko's new Eagle CS energy storage platform is a fully integrated turnkey AC coupled system featuring lithium iron phosphate for LFP batteries. It's scalable and fully configurable making it ideal for any CNI or utility application. Eagle CS features both container level battery storage and modular solutions for maximum flexibility in system design. From microgrids to full-scale utility applications, Eagle CS has a solution and it's all backed by one of the most trusted brands in the renewable energy industry. Jinko's Eagle RS is a fully integrated DC coupled residential energy storage system that features best-in-class safety with LFP battery chemistry, an intelligent US-based monitoring app, and a single wrapped warranty. Jinko's high-capacity storage system is ideal for homes that need more than a few hours of backup. The use of just one single hybrid inverter for both the solar and the storage energy conversion provides the best value for solar plus storage installations. Visit www.jinkosolar.us interchange to learn more about Jinko Solar's Eagle Storage products. Now, switching gears a little bit, I mean, obviously we've got high levels of inflation right now. Uh, we've had the Fed recently come out and raise rates higher than higher than expected, although I don't think completely unexpected, right? I mean, we, we knew that we were going to be significant. I think it was 50 basis points was what was anticipated early on, uh, and they came to 75 basis points. What impact do you think that's going to have going forward? Because I personally don't think it's going to be 
the last rate increase that we see. And the Fed is continuing to reduce the balance sheet on their asset purchase program, reducing the flow of capital out there. So what do you see over the next couple of years as the Fed continues to take these actions on the investment climate? Yeah, calling the Fed is way beyond my pay grade, but uh, we certainly are, are in a indefinitely rising rate environment uh, in order to not be in an indefinitely inflation rising environment. I think it varies a lot by field. And to give you some examples, uh, you know, there are companies that we've backed in pretty deeply industrial categories, right, that are trying to solve problems behind the scenes that contribute greatly to climate change, which may not sit in one industry, you know, like industrial process heat, which is behind lots of different fields. You know, these are industrial companies. They typically are big dollar purchases that are all B2B. They generally operate at relatively low margins, at least compared to things like pharmaceuticals or semiconductors. We are thinking really carefully with our CEOs and trying to build strong investment syndicates to make sure that if we have a period in the wilderness where it does get harder for those companies to raise money because of this rising rate environment, uh, that we have enough folks around the table with deep enough pockets and a long-term enough vision to see that through, whether that's a year or two or three or five. And that's just a fact of life in many of these industrial categories, and we have to accept it. It's a part of doing business. I do think, though, there are a number of domains in climate that may be a little more immune uh, than you would see. One of them that I would point to is anything touching the electrification of vehicles. We are now at a point where the commitments have been made, the capital has been raised, the shareholder expectations have been set, the factories are being built uh, for more EVs, more electric battery packs, and there are enough other positives, you know, like being in an expensive environment for oil and gas, you know, like being in an environment where the operations and maintenance costs of electric vehicles are so much lower than they are for gasoline power ones. They're just a better investment that I don't think if you're somewhere in the supply chain leading to raw material of batteries through to packs, through to electric drive chains, you probably have less to worry about. You know, your future demand is probably baked in. I think when it comes to voluntary carbon removal with a high bar, the bar that companies like Microsoft, Stripe, Shopify, others have set, favoring credits that are additional, durable, verifiable, you know, those are also commitments that have been made in industries that are more insulated from the ups and downs of a rising rate environment, where I think it would be very difficult for someone like Microsoft to come back to the table and say to institutional investors, oh, that commitment we made to decarbonize back to founding in the early 1970s, we're not going to do that anymore. That would be a, a very big pill to swallow. Other fields, you know, kind of lie across the spectrum, but I don't think it's one size fits all. And in this environment, are you guys adjusting your required rate of returns? Yeah, you know, it's funny to think about required rate of return. We have that question a lot from LPs, right? Where they tell us, what's your returns target? And we know there's a right answer to this. It's the same reason that every venture fundraising deck ends with, we're going to be 3x cash on cash and 20% IRR. Frankly, we think this is an angels dancing in the head of a pen exercise. And when we get asked the question and we answer it in the following roundabout way, people are unsatisfied, but at least they hope we're being honest. If you look over the long term in venture capital, you know, from the trackers of the class, organizations like Cambridge Associates, and you don't just look at, you know, an up cycle, like what the field has been in for the last 10 years, but you go across cycles, what percentage of venture funds return capital, let alone make any profits, just return capital? It's small. It's way less than half of them, right? So the class as a whole loses money. The only reason to be in it as an LP for purely financial reasons, uh, which is not what we do, you know, is to be in the upper quartile or decile of funds. Uh, you know, why would you do it? 
because the only way to get access to the next Google or Uber uh, is through participating in this quirky asset class. As a result, we don't think it's a very productive conversation to talk about what return threshold we have for the fund and how that then goes through to underlying investments. We think it's much more productive to talk about the things we addressed earlier, about are we solving big climate problems or small ones? Do we have a big techno-economic entitlement or a more arguable one? Do we have founders you know, who blow your socks off in you know, one dimension or another, or a team that may be less competitive for customers, for employees, and for capital? I would say that we do, you know, start to move around the level of emphasis we have on different attributes of a company. Ten years ago, the number one attribute in a clean tech, as it would have been called at the time, startup CEO would have been the ability to raise capital, period, because there wasn't any. (laughs) That, you know, dropped off in the last few years. And for good reasons, there have been companies that may have had, you know, more heavily technical teams or may have had more first-time entrepreneurs who have benefited from an environment in which capital was ample, flush, relatively cheap, and the fundraising prowess of the team mattered less. That's going to matter more now. Uh, The ability to partner with corporations, you know, the ability to help shape and influence discussions about regulation and policy are going to matter a lot in particular fields in a way they might not have three or four years ago. And I, I would say we think about those things a lot. Yeah, it sounds like, I mean, the investment strategy really is very dynamic on a case-by-case basis and adjusting based on what what the impact and what the company's specific profile is. And particularly for us, because we overlay that with this principle of additionality, you know, chasing neglected categories, and that moves around. There are fields that we were very excited about investing in and where we felt we were relatively alone, you know, five years ago, things like carbon dioxide removal uh, and things like lithium extraction that now are very amply funded. And it would be uncommon for us to look at, you know, new investments in those areas because of that principle of additionality that we have to adhere to. It's not a preference. It's a requirement. It's written into the agreements where the limited partners have given us their money to invest or to tie us to invest use. With that said, categories also go out of favor. So I've spent time looking recently at solar and you're like solar finance and no, just solar hardware. Like what's the next frontier of turning photons into motion of electrons. How are we going to do that? Uh, We've looked a lot at computing, you know, not of the quantum variety, but of sort of fundamentally different computing architectures that could have a techno-economic entitlement to a lower watts per computation or watts per bits flipped. And those are categories that might have been in vogue a while back and have gone out of favor, you know, rather than stayed out of favor. No, it is interesting because a number of guests that we've had on this podcast with technologies as we continue with the energy transition, the guidelines set for 2050, is so dependent on additional technological advancements, right? Because it's a holistic transition that you don't have one answer. So technology continues to develop, and I think you guys fit a really nice need within the industry. Let me ask you about your thoughts on SPACs. I've seen a little bit of a resurgence in SPACs as it relates to energy transition type companies. What are your thoughts? Do you think that that's an appropriate and effective vehicle for these type of companies eventually? You know, I think the SPAC thesis, right, you know, for really big ideas that are less well worked out but have large capital requirements, provided that they have attached to them extraordinary teams and paths to market and yada, 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 definitely fills a hole for being able to finance some of these companies. Unfortunately, <laughs> as I think we're aware of everything from equity crowdfunding, you know, to uh, NFTs, may God rest their soul. Anytime you introduce a new financial innovation, 
there will be defraudment of grandmas. And the question is, what level of grandma defraudment are we going to have? And I think if you look at, you know, energy and climate companies, there are a number who are people who jump to mind. You know, QuantumScape, XL Fleet, that are just like really interesting companies doing really interesting stuff and had a novel way to be able to accelerate and raise capital that might have been more challenging and more costly to do otherwise. For every one of those, there's probably a significantly greater number of half-baked ideas that couldn't cut it in the conventional capital-raising marketplace and got in quick while there wasn't a lot of scrutiny by the SEC on a new way to raise money. Because I think SPACs have become something of a bad neighborhood, whenever, and it's rare, but you know, when a company we've invested in raised a SPAC as a, you know, a path to capital raising or a path to liquidity, we start with an arched eyebrow you know, and ask, is this really the right way to build a long-term sustainable business? I'm sure at some point there's going to be one that passes that test, but it's also probably going to be a fairly unique case. Yeah, I agree. I mean, the SPAC uh, environment has cycled, right? I mean, I remember early 2000s for energy companies, uh, SPACs were very popular, and there have been some successful companies that come out of that strategy. But then it died for a while, and now it seems to be coming back. So I was really interested in your thoughts on the effectiveness of that uh, going forward. From a policy standpoint, you, earlier you mentioned solar, and recently the Biden administration announced some initiatives to help with uh, renewable energy production here in the U.S. But what do you see from a policy standpoint that's being done, that should be done, reversed, uh, you name it, to help with the financing of these early stage companies, typically what you do, to really help progress the technology in the energy transition? It's frustrating, right? Because the answer is we should price the externality. And whether the externality of you know, greenhouse gas emissions is priced through a revenue neutral carbon tax or priced through a cap and trade mechanism or priced through whatever, pricing the externality would solve a very, very, very large number of problems. I'll confess to you that personally, and you know, my partners would differ in their points of view on this, we're all different folks and we need that in an organization that's making tough decisions about uncertain stuff. I'm personally a cynic about the ability of regulatory policy to affect long-term change. Uh, I don't think we're very good at it in this country. And I think even in regions of the world that you say have been good at it, there have been sharp reversals, uh, for example, around solar uh, in the earlier part of the last decade in parts of Western Europe, uh, you know, that really ended up scoring some own goals when it came to getting deployment scaled. And, you know, for a variety of reasons, we seem to be most frightened of enacting policy that treats different technology solutions on a like-for-like -like basis. You know, for example, for reasons that I think we all understand, uh, you know, nuclear fission, which is the one arrow in the quiver that has plenty of issues, but greenhouse gas emissions are not one of them. You know, that's an arrow that, despite that pretty straightforward advantage, has just had a really hard time in places in the world that haven't been in crisis, like the UK, right, which may bring a lot more nuclear reactors online because they're going to need them if they don't have cheap gas to get done anywhere. As a result, in our investment strategy, we generally just don't consider the impact of pending and even current regulation on the income statements of companies that we look at. We probably miss opportunities that way. You know, the ITC and PTC, for example, and conventional Solar and wind have been pretty enduring instruments. Uh, if you were a pessimist about that, you probably would have missed a wave. I think that's okay. I think we dodge more bullets you know, than we miss opportunities. The one place where we've made an explicit decision to not do that and to you know, consider the impact of future policy is about carbon removal. And the reason for that is not what governments have done, but what corporations have done all on their own. 
when we're in an environment where such a large percentage of the Fortune 1000 have made carbon neutral or carbon negative commitments, and they have made those to institutional investors on whom their share prices, access to capital, liquidity depends, it's challenging to see those at this scale being walked back. It's a case where we think policy and regulation are following market activity rather than policy and regulation stimulating market activity. And for that reason, in that one case, we made an explicit decision that we're going to factor in 45Q, even if you know there might be a risk that it doesn't endure. We're going to factor in you know, future carbon pricing, even if right now we're dependent on the voluntary market, because we think that's a tough genie to put back in the bottle. In other areas, though, if somebody shows up with an industrial heat proposition and says, well, we expect House Bill XYZ to be passed that will introduce credit ABC, you know, for industrial heat that's not fossil fuel derived, we would just zero that out in the pro forma when we were evaluating the company. So if you were to pick kind of one advancement that you've either invested in, taken a look at, or you see out there right now that's really going to have a huge impact going forward, whether it be in 10 years or by 2050, what would that be? You know, David, we're not allowed to like one of our children more than the others. Uh, let, let me give you a few examples, right? I think in terms of what has made it the furthest, Lilac Solutions and Lithium Extraction that I mentioned, I think shows an extraordinary glimmer of having very near-term impact in an industry that will not be able to decarbonize without a radical change. In, in the same way that when I was a kid in eighth grade, right, like my science tech book said, it is known that there are enormous amounts of oil and gas in the U.S., but they are trapped in shale deposits, which cannot be economically accessed. And that was probably the same for, you know, decades of school textbooks. It would look very different now because a disruptive technology enabled access to a resource that was more equitably distributed globally and widely accessible, just not economic. I think we really are coming to a turning point when it comes to raw materials for batteries, initially lithium, but you know, in the longer term, cobalt, nickel, varies by formulation, of course, cathode formulation, that I think really will, will unleash widespread decarbonization of transport. So that's, you know, one thing to think about. You know, if you look at what, where, where do you have the biggest impact uh, on climate, if you could pick one sector, you would pick agriculture. You know, numbers differ, but somewhere in the 20% range of contribution to net greenhouse gas emissions. And the largest single driver behind that is food waste. Uh, and we've invested in a company called Clean Crop Technologies that is going after that problem in a very novel way, one that doesn't involve putting a coating around the avocado or might be specific to a given type of food, but it is kind of broadly applicable and slots into the existing processing chains. You know, we think that advances in agriculture are a big deal. You know, maybe that company could be a leading light for things that might follow it. Uh, but we also strongly believe that nature-based solutions, technology-enabled nature-based solutions are going to be a big component. And again, you need kind of leading light companies to blaze a trail and going back to a prior part of our conversation, be thoughtful and cautious about the potential negative downside risks of nature-based solutions and very intentional about community engagement and proving something in one ecosystem before deploying it in others. You know, one company we've invested in called Project Vesta that is focused on ocean sequestration of carbon through a naturally occurring sand called olivine. It's green, hence olive, hence olivine, you know, that is uh, able to pull carbon down in the oceans when deployed on coastlines. Uh, we think so far has taken a very thoughtful approach. It actually grew out of a nonprofit that became a company and has those values embedded in its DNA. If those things can be leading lights for a field, Maybe it's not that company alone that has this extraordinary impact, 
but it may help cultivate an environment and a group of other competitors that could lead to that at a systems level. And for us, given our mission, that's a win. I appreciate you coming on the podcast. It's been a, a really interesting discussion. I mean, my background is kind of on investment banking and later stage companies, right? The public companies, big balance sheets. And it's really interesting to see how the process is going in this very early part of the energy transition. And Azola Ventures really filling financing gaps to help these companies along where you see them and, and being dynamic enough to be able to follow that gap, as we talked about earlier. And it's really interesting to get your thoughts on the market the financing environment, and what you guys are doing. I really appreciate you coming on the show. The space is a moving target, and every morning in my email, there's a curveball, but you know that's also what makes it fun. Thank you for having me. With exponential growth, we're seeing the amount of ESG investing in green tech explode. Investment in infrastructure, research, and utilities is laying the foundation for the energy transition, and companies like Azola are at the forefront. This is only the beginning. There's plenty more to come. There's plenty more to come on the interchange, too. In a couple of weeks, I speak with Luca Pedretti from Pexapark, a provider of enterprise-wide software to discuss the state of the PPA market and his views on the evolution of energy transition financings. I'm David Banmiller. See you next time.